You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, November 16th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, lawmakers are preparing budget recommendations for next year's legislative session, but top officials disagree on how it should be divided up. Then some LGBTQ health care providers are leaving the Gulf South over what they call discriminatory state laws. Plus, dozens of prisons and jails throughout Mississippi hold psychiatric patients in crisis until they can be transferred to medical facilities but a new report finds that only one jail in the state meets the requirements in state law. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A select group of Mississippi lawmakers met in Jackson yesterday to determine what a state budget should look like next year. Revenue estimates from the Office of the State Economist show Mississippi could expect a revenue of $7.6 billion. But members of the Joint Legislative Budget Committee are proposing a budget of $7.5 million, around $117 well, that's $7.5 billion, around $117 million less than projections. Governor Tate Reeves told members of the committee he disagrees with this plan, which could reduce his chances of seeing the income tax eliminated. Well, I just, I guess I'm kind of caught off guard because uh, I didn't anticipate uh, there would be a change. As, as everyone knows, the only role the governor has in the revenue estimate is in the fall, not in the spring. And therefore, I was prepared to come in and, and agree to the estimate as it was produced by the experts. Um, for those of us who, for instance, are very interested in cutting taxes in this legislative session, um, arbitrarily lowering the number for no apparent reason um, hurts our ability to justify those tax cuts. Um, I'm a very strong proponent of cutting taxes. Um, in this legislative session, um, I'm going to be regardless of what this number is, but I don't see any justification for telling the head of the Department of Revenue, the head of the Department of Finance Administration, the state economist, and the other, the head of the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, who recognized a slowdown in their number that they're wrong and arbitrarily lowering the number by a couple hundred million dollars, which makes tax cuts harder to get across the finish line, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to me. And so for me, which the, the law, I pr- believe, provides for the governor to 
uh, for there to be a revenue estimate, the governor has to agree to it. And I don't see any justification for lowering the number at this time. This year, Mississippi had a revenue surplus of more than $600 million. But discussions to cut taxes stalled earlier in the session. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman supports cutting some taxes, such as the grocery tax, but has been more reserved on fully eliminating the income tax. He says this conservative budget proposal still leaves room for tax cuts in the upcoming year. Well, as you know, Governor, the the difference... The amount you're talking about tax decreases, which we have done in prior years, as you know, uh, the difference between the budget and the estimate is where they come from. So this, by by having what what we consider to be a realistic approach to it, regardless of the proposals, that still leaves significant amount of funds available for tax relief or anything, education or whatever else. So it's not like we, uh, our budget, our initial budget's, uh, it's in the six, six, whatever million, believe it still, uh, probably a six or seven hundred million dollar possibility, which would either matriculate as we get further into March when we do that or not. House Speaker Pro Tem Jason White says this will only be a budget recommendation. The state's economy could shift between now and when budget bills are being passed in April. I have never cared what our state economists thought about what our money was going to be. If we had listened to him, we wouldn't have tax cuts that we have now. Um, so I would like I, to disagree with you on that, but I just can't do it. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and I don't know how much input he had into the figure that, that they end up coming with as a recommendation. I would, I would just say, for what it's worth, most of the people around this table have shown an ability and fortitude to, to not only draft legislation, but to corral the votes and get it passed for major tax cuts. And I think that is the aim of the majority of the people around this table going forward. Whether or not the state economists believe we're at 650 or, or whatever figure he wants to put on any of that stuff. Um, so, you know, my, my colleagues here seem to think that there is a little bit of a slowdown. They're, they're hesitant to jump up another hundred and something million dollars and want to stay with their original where we left it at, at Sine Die, this estimate. Um, for, for my part of it, I'm, I'm trying to work in good faith with them because I anticipate the House will probably be back with an income tax cut plan in the very near future. And so um, I'm trying to be a team player all the way around for whatever that's worth. Um, I think we're squabbling over $100 million some odd dollars. Speaker and I were talking. I said, well, I can tell you what the governor's frustration is. He's looking at tax cuts, same as you and I are. And it does. It does from a selling standpoint. And I don't want to not include you in the tax cuts we've already done because if you had not got involved, we probably would not have gotten the tax cuts we got a couple of years ago. So I want to commend you for that. And certainly any future tax cuts we have will require your help to get it across the finish line. So I want to acknowledge that publicly. But I also want to say I think the group as a whole felt we were being – a little bit aggressive in, in light of just what the numbers are on paper, whether or not Corey Miller thinks they're a slowdown or not, there is a slight downtick. And, and there was this was simply an acknowledgement of that. As I don't know if that's a fair statement. That's my feelings on it. Y'all may feel different about it. The committee lowered the estimate to match the current year due to a slowing of the state economy expected through 2025. Governor Reeves says he could overlook his objection to this budget proposal if he gets assurances from the Senate that the income tax could be cut again this coming year. 
Well, I would just simply say, look, I, I'm, I'm, if Governor Husband, if you can say today that you anticipate there will be an income tax cut that comes out of the Senate and the legislature in 2024, I'm more than willing to agree to the number as it comes because it seems what I'm hearing is there's general consensus that income taxes ought to be cut. And so if if you can go on the record, then I think I could probably agree to this number. And um, and I would just tell you that we're going to um, in the executive budget recommendation, because really this number only applies to the EBR. And I can tell you we're not going to increase spending in the EBR. We're going to we're going to propose tax income tax cuts in the EBR. And so if you can uh, go on record saying that you anticipate there will be an income tax cut that comes out of the Senate, then I can probably agree to this number. Yeah, we are, we are uh, anticipating there will be tax relief this year. Now, whether that's grocery tax, income tax, or other taxes, I can't tell you that because, as you well know, having been in this position, I don't vote. <laughs> they all vote. So whether I say it or not wouldn't make that really that much difference. Whether they say it or not would make a big difference. But we have a history, and we have positioned ourselves. Again, I didn't vote on it, but the members of the legislature have in the last four years have positioned Mississippi for the best financial condition it's ever been in. They've devoted more money to education, more money to tax cuts, more money to infrastructure than ever. So rather uh, than talk about what we may do in the future, the it's clear to me what the appetite for the last four years is, and most everybody in this room got reelected, including the governor. So I doubt very seriously things are going to change in regards to tax relief, continuing tax relief. The committee passed its projected proposal despite Reeves' objections. The two sides will have to come to an agreement next month before the committee can adopt its legislative budget recommendation. Coming up, some LGBTQ health care providers are leaving the Gulf South over what they call discriminatory state laws. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Ari Shapiro with NPR. People collect all sorts of things. Stamps, antique lamps, sports memorabilia. If you happen to collect cars and you're looking to make room for some new additions, look no further than this station. Pickup is free and you're helping make your favorite NPR programs possible. Learn more about it on this station's website and thank you in advance for thinking about helping public radio. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Over the last year, state legislatures in the Gulf South saw a deluge of bills aimed at LGBTQ people, especially trans youth. As the Gulf States Newsroom's Drew Hawkins reports, these policies are causing some doctors to leave a region that's already having a serious shortage of health care providers. Being a parent to small children comes with a lot of responsibility and a lot of noise. Should we go somewhere else? If we can step into, like, maybe just the next room, yeah. that's totally fine. That's four-year-old Connor Kleinman building or maybe destroying some Lego structures with a toy crane. Most of his other toys are packed away in moving boxes. Uh, we move next week, so... Connor's dad, Dr. Jake Kleinman, is a pediatric cardiologist. He specializes in heart transplants for small children. He was one of only three in the entire state of Louisiana, 
But then he and his family moved to New York. I caught up with them in August before they left. He says it was a really hard decision, but for his six-year-old daughter, Isabel, it wasn't difficult to understand. She recognized that we can't live in a state that's trying to make laws against our family. It's, it's, when you break it down like that for even a six-year-old, it's pretty simple. Kleinman says with the increase in anti-LGBTQ policies in the state, especially anti-trans legislation, it just doesn't feel safe for them to raise young children here. So it was a very clear moment for us. That's Jake's husband, Tom Kleinman. So Jake was at work. I was working from home, and we were both watching the Senate Education Committee debate the uh, Don't Say Gay Bill and the Pronoun Bill. Tom says when the time came for people to speak out against the bills, doctors, teachers, concerned parents, conservative lawmakers got up and walked out of the chamber. They wouldn't even listen to the testimony. And Jake and Tom had heard enough. It was very clear that they didn't care. They didn't care about our family. They had an agenda they were going with, and we really weren't welcome in the state anymore. And... To put the, the icing on the cake to say they, they scheduled this vote during the first day of Pride Month. Um, that was no coincidence. Dr. Jake took to social media to vent his frustrations. He went to his Instagram page, Heart Dr. Daddy Shark, and posted a photo of him and Tom and the kids. In the caption, he announced they were leaving to protect their children. That post went viral, and it caught the attention of other LGBTQ medical providers in the region, including Dr. Alex Mills. Reading Dr. Jake's post was like looking in a mirror. Mills was the co-director of the LGBTQ clinic at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. That clinic was shut down earlier this year after state lawmakers criticized it for providing gender-affirming care to trans kids. The motivation to stay here to provide practice and care is dwindling to almost zero. So I read that post from Dr. Jake and was like, yep, totally get it. Feel the exact same way. The sooner that he has a chance to feel valued and his partner feels valued, the better. I'm I'm in the exact same boat. And Mills says he's not alone. On internal listservs and group messages, other medical providers in the Gulf South are looking for jobs elsewhere because of the rise in anti-LGBTQ legislation. You know, send me your CV. I'll make sure that it gets on the right desk, you know, when that position opens. There haven't been any formal studies, so we don't know just how many people are leaving. But here's the thing. The Gulf South really can't afford to lose any medical providers right now. Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama are all designated as health professional shortage areas, meaning there just aren't enough providers to meet the medical need. And there's also the ripple effect caused by a loss of providers. LGBTQ patients often turn to providers who identify like them for support. One patient interacted with me and sent a message um, that was saying, I don't feel safe here anymore. I feel suicidal. Um, And that's, again, just that sentiment of not feeling valued, feeling less than in a state. Um, I'm sure it's not just one patient who feels that way. Kleinman says he's gotten a lot of comments attacking his family's decision to leave. They say he's abandoning his young patients. But he never wanted to leave. He planned on building a world-class pediatric heart transplant program in Louisiana. And he and Tom were going to retire here. Louisiana has driven us out. Louisiana has not given back to us. 
Conservative state legislators in the Gulf South have vowed to continue to introduce more bills that target LGBTQ people. Future studies may show what some are seeing now, more providers leaving a region that badly needs them because of discrimination. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Drew Hawkins. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Next, Mississippi jails often house psychiatric patients until they can be transferred to health care facilities, but only one is certified in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. These days, people go to great lengths to shed the stress of daily life. There's acupuncture, deep tissue massage, meditation, yoga. At All Things Considered, we offer our own type of healing, invigorating news stories that span the rainbow of human experience. Nourish your mind and escape from the ordinary. Weekdays on All Things Considered from NPR News. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. When police are called to assist with someone having a mental health crisis, they will often take them to the local holding facility until the patient can be transferred to a mental health facility. But only one prison or jail in the state is certified by state law for that purpose. Despite that, more than 800 people awaiting treatment were jailed in the state between June of 2022 and July of this year until they could be committed to a mental health hospital. Almost all those patients were in uncertified facilities, and many who weren't committed were omitted from the count. That's according to a new report from Isabel Taft, a health reporter with Mississippi Today and member of the local reporting network for ProPublica. She tells our Kobe Vance, Mississippi is already an outlier in this practice of jailing people dealing with mental health crises. We did a story back in July that explained how in Mississippi, when a person files an affidavit for civil commitment, that is, they say, you know, I think my loved one needs uh, psychiatric care. The sheriff's deputies in that county can go and pick up the person who is uh, supposedly in need of treatment And then in many counties, the deputies will then take that person to jail with no criminal charges. So that's pretty unique around the country. From what we can tell, Mississippi is the only state uh, in the country where people are routinely jailed with no criminal charges for days or weeks at a time solely because they may need psychiatric care. You know, it's very common in other parts of the country for people with mental illness or experiencing crisis to be arrested and charged with a crime and then ultimately sent to treatment instead. Mississippi is unique in that they don't even do the criminal charge. Um, You can just be held there not having been accused of a crime or done anything at all. And the story that we published yesterday looks at a very specific piece of the state's civil commitment code saying that any county facility that holds people who are awaiting hospitalization shall be certified by the State Department of Mental Health. You know, very few people at the county level were aware of this. The current leadership of the Department of Mental Health was not really aware of how it had been implemented in the past because it it was passed in 2009. Only four county facilities were certified. Two of them were jails. And then up to now, there's only one certified jail. So you have, you know, dozens and dozens of jails that are holding people that are supposed to be certified and they're not. 
very little regulation of, of county jails in Mississippi, and, and people are generally treated like criminal defendants. What were some of the findings in terms of the conditions at these jails that there's not, especially since there's not been too much oversight over them uh, into maintaining proper conditions? There are no standards in Mississippi around suicide screening protocols and policies. People who are in jail solely because they are having a mental health crisis and are therefore at higher risk of suicide, um, they are not necessarily given rigorous evidence-based suicide screenings, and they're not necessarily held in cells that are safe, cells that have, you know, protrusions, bars, they're given blankets, that kind of thing. And the standards that are in place for a facility to be certified, they address that issue. They address a lot of issues involving access to medical care, to psychiatric treatment. Another thing that we've found is, you know, when you're in jail during the commitment process, you don't necessarily have access to really any kind of medical care guaranteed. People who are being jailed just for commitment proceedings, they're often you know, shackled, given jail uniforms, held in the same cells as people facing charges. So really anything that you could think of as kind of a aspect of being in jail applies to people who are there just because they need mental health treatment. How long are people being held on average? So the Department of Mental Health data uh, they track the amount of time that people spend in jail after their commitment hearings, and it has been decreasing in the last year or two as the department has expanded staffing at the state hospitals. So in the FY23 data, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of, of five days after the hearing, but that does not give you a full picture because people can be in jail seven days, 10 days, sometimes longer before they even have a hearing. Why are jails not applying to get this regulation uh, and making sure that they are up to code? There's a couple of reasons. I think the most immediate one is that for a long time they didn't know about it. The Department of Mental Health, as far as we can tell, has not communicated with counties about this requirement since 2013. From about 2010 to 2013, they were sending memos out to every single county in the state saying this is what the law requires. I think they had difficulty getting some counties to respond, some counties to apply for certification, and then it sort of faded away. Uh, another part of the reason is that it can be quite expensive for the county jails to meet the standards that, that are in place. They would, in some cases, have to renovate the jails. They would have to create new contracts with mental health care providers. And for rural counties in Mississippi, that can be quite challenging. Another part of it is that the sheriff have long said, you know, we don't want to be holding people who haven't been charged with a crime. This isn't our role. And I think there's some concern that if you start certifying the jails, that kind of codifies that idea that, well, if the jail is certified, it's got to be an okay place to put somebody uh, in this situation. But I think since the Department of Mental Health sent out the letters in early October, there has been some movement. The last time I checked with the department, they had had seven counties reach out about certification. Now, in your article, I noticed that one of the sheriffs, I believe, that you spoke with uh, had some concerns about the cost of this and how it falls directly onto the counties. What do you think that says about the state and, and how Mississippi as a whole is trying to address this issue, but also the extra burden it does place on local municipalities to try to fund their ability to meet the requirements. 
I think that issue really gets to one of the key challenges in resolving this problem, you know, Mississippi holding people in jail during the commitment process, because under state law, counties are responsible for people until they get admitted to the state facility. But at the same time, you know, counties simply do not have the resources that the state has. Somebody told me, you know, there's no county department of mental health. This is a state agency that is responsible for behavioral health programs. I think there's been kind of some finger pointing just in general, you know, counties will say, well, the Department of Mental Health or the state isn't giving us the resources we need. The state, the Department of Mental Health will say, well, the counties need to step up, you know, the counties need to stop putting people in jail. And I think the ultimate solution has to be kind of pragmatic and just recognize where the resources are. And I think there's some energy around expanding crisis stabilization units, which get state funding, but are operated by the local community mental health centers, and they're spread all over the state. In theory, often they're full or they turn people away. But I, yeah, I think the heart of this issue is that there's some contention between the counties and the state over who is responsible in general, not only with the certified facilities issue, but with the broader question of where should people go when they're awaiting psychiatric treatment? Isabel Taft is a reporter with Mississippi Today and a local reporting fellow with ProPublica. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi programming. At 9, it's Creature Comforts. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition only on MPB Think Radio. Have a good day. Keep an umbrella with you.